Welcome to episode two of the Green Enterprise Podcast. I'm Leonard Alf, its host. I hope you enjoy today's episode called Cars, Trains and Trees, Government Planning for a Better World. You can find these conversations on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify, and follow our work at gre-enterprise.org. Today I'm joined by Mr. Randall O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole is an American public policy analyst, a senior fellow of the Cato Institute, and a former visiting scholar at Yale, Berkeley, and Utah State University. His extensive list of publications and other books includes Reforming the Forest Service, The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, The Best Laid Plans, and, most recently, Romance of the Rails. His private consultancy and blog, The Anti-Planner, can be found at ti.org. Mr. O'Toole, welcome on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. First, I'd like to talk about transportation and urban planning. How have these domains evolved through time, and what opportunities do they provide now for sustainability? Well, actually, I'm rather critical of government planning, and that's really my area of expertise, whether it's urban planning or rural planning or uh, land use planning, uh, private land planning, public land planning, when planning is done by government, it creates serious problems. Uh, you and I can write plans. You know, we, we can say, well, we're going to plan to do our laundry this weekend. And then if our rich uncle calls us up and says, hey, I'll, I'll take you to Hawaii. Well, we're willing to change our plans. But when government writes a plan, there's immediately formed special interest groups that benefit from that plan. And when that Even if that plan turns out to be a miserable failure, the special interest groups lobby hard to keep it in place. And so it becomes very difficult for government to change its plans. And so I've looked at uh, transportation planning that has evolved over the past 50 years from uh, planning to, by figuring out how do people want to get around and let's provide the transportation facilities for them to do that, to how do we think people ought to get around and we'll provide them the transportation facilities for them to do that, even if they don't use them. That to me is an example of bad government planning. Uh, I've seen urban planning evolve from how do people want to live? They want to live in single family homes or let's make it feasible for them to build single family homes as economically as possible to How do we think people should live? We think people should live in apartments. And so we're gonna make it as hard as possible for people to build the single family homes they want. And we're gonna subsidize and otherwise incentivize the construction of multifamily homes that people really don't want to live in, which is why we have to give them subsidies to do it. So these are the kinds of trends I'm seeing in urban and transportation planning, and they're very disturbing, and they just make me more and more wary of government planning in general. On the subject of urban, urban planning and government planning, uh, I'd like to read you a short passage from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Archipelago Gulag, and perhaps have you expound upon that. Open quote. Then came 1927, and the rationality of the NEP period went up in smoke. Extravagantly unrealistic projections of a super-industrial forward leap had been, in, had been announced. Impossible plans and tasks had been assigned. It was necessary to try to introduce some moderation to these plans, 
in the interests of all industry and of all the people, since ruinous decisions could be avoided and squandered, scattered millions could be picked up from the ground, it was necessary to defend, the qu to defend quality, the heart of technology, amid the, the general uproar about qu quantity, planning, and overplanning. While Professor Mary Wood contends that government agencies open, quote, cloak environmental denigration in a veil of legality, close quote, by regulating it, your work illustrates the inadequacies of the Forest Service and other urban planning agencies. So from the Soviet Union to the Environmental Protection Agency to American suburbs, what is wrong, essentially, with government planning? Well, government planners think that they know how the economy works. They think they know how cities work. They think they know how forests work. But cities and forests and the world is not only more complicated than we understand, it's more complicated than we can understand. And so when we write plans, whether it's a forest plan or a city plan or a sustainability plan for the whole country, we have to simplify things. And I actually uh, read a book by one famous sustainability planner who said, uh, if the economy is too complicated for us to model, well, we'll simplify the economy. Now that, you know, he was cheered for saying that, but if he had said that about a forest, if he had said a forest was too complicated for us to model, we'll simplify it by just clear cutting everything and just planting one kind of tree and not letting anything else grow. People would hate him for that. And yet that's essentially what he was saying for our uh, uh, economy, that we would simplify it and only allow certain kinds of things to happen. So that's what we see happen is that government planners simplify, they then regulate to try to make sure that their oversimplification of the world is the vision that comes true rather than some other more complex, complex reality, which is what really wants to happen. You talk extensively about how urban planners actively increase congestion in an attempt to incentivize citizens to drive less. And as far as I'm concerned, this shows that there are many misconceptions amongst policymakers about how to make change. How do incentives affect agency structure? And how can they be improved to form the, the ideal agency? Well, unfortunately, incentives play a perverse role in government planning. Uh, if we relied on markets to solve our problems for us, the incentives are built into the markets. And the great thing about markets is you don't have to know everything. You have to know what's important to you. What can you produce? What do you want? And how much are you willing to pay for what you want? How much are you willing to accept for what you produce? And when you rely on planning instead of markets, you don't have answers to any of those questions. You don't know what something is worth. And so any incentives you get are going to be very crude. It's like, 
okay, we'll give somebody an incentive to do something they don't want to do by just paying them. If, if we pay them enough, they'll do something that they don't want to do. Well, that's crude and it ends up being very expensive and it ends up not being very successful. Just as an example, in 1970, the federal government, the Congress created the Environmental Protection Agency and gave it a mandate to clean up our air. And the air in, in American cities was then so dirty that you couldn't see from one end of the city to the other. So like uh, air in, in Beijing today, you know, the air quality was terrible. So the Environmental Protection Agency came up with two strategies. Number one, we're going to make cars cleaner. All new cars will have to be cleaner and will progressively increase the, the cleanliness of cars. Number two, we'll try to attract people out of their automobiles and onto public transit, bicycles, whatever. So these are the two-pronged strategy. The first strategy was enormously successful. We managed to reduce air pollution from motor vehicles by 89% even though we drive three times as much, we're producing only 11% as much pollution as we were in 1970. The second strategy was a total failure. We didn't get anybody out of their cars. In 1970, the average American rode public transit 50 times a year. Today, it's about 35 times a year before the pandemic. Uh, after the pandemic, of course, it'll be even less. So. Uh, we failed to get people out of their cars, and yet that is still the strategy that many cities are using. They're trying to get people out of their cars, even though we know it doesn't work, even though we know it works better to make cars that are cleaner, safer, and more efficient. So we're stuck in the wrong strategy. Regarding car regulation, you write in the best laid plans that, open quote, whatever the problems of driving, greenhouse gas emissions, energy consumption, and so forth, solving them with new technologies will be more successful and have fewer economic effects than attempting to reduce per capita driving, close quote. Does the mainstreaming of the electric car and the introduction of modern rail technologies, such as Hyperloop, revindicate your point about free market environmentalism? Well, I wouldn't say that markets are internalizing negative effects, but when fuel prices go up, people want more fuel efficient cars. And so uh, we've reduced the fuel consumption of, our, of the average automobile by almost 50% in the last 50 years. That's partly because of a government regulation in the United States requiring companies to make more fuel efficient cars, but it was also because of the increase in fuel prices in the 1970s and 1980s. And, you know, which is more responsible? One's a market solution, one's a government solution. I don't know, but we've done it. It shows that technical solutions to making automobiles better works better than trying to get people out of their cars. So uh, there are market solutions to a lot of different problems. There's some problems that don't have easy to implement market solutions. And then the question becomes, is the outcome of the market worse than the outcome of government action trying to correct the market? And it turns out sometimes it's just easier to live with the market, which isn't working perfectly, than it is to build a giant government bureaucracy that has enormous power over people 
and tries to control how they live and how they get around uh, and doesn't do it very well, but cop imposes lots of costs on people, that probably isn't a very good solution either. One of the things I've been most anxious to talk with you about is the trade-off between imperfect market systems and imperfect government planning. As far as I can tell, you in many cases have been favorable to the market alternative. So you detail how the federal government, on the other hand, has grown tremendously in size over the past century and describe its feedback system as being unstable, incentivizing runaway growth. At, at a certain point in the best laid plan, you use the analogy of a ball in a basin as a stable system compared to a ball at the top of the hill as an unstable system. And clearly, uh, to imagine a, a government incentivizing runaway growth that goes out of control, uh, such a system would, would inevitably become pathological. So what, what factors are at play here and how can they be optimized? How can the government optimally, optimally impact the market? Well, the first thing is that Congress needs to think about the incentives it creates when it passes an agency's budget, when it passes new legislation and things like that. Congress almost never takes incentives into account. Now, let me just take you through a little bit of my analysis of how the Forest Service worked. The Forest Service was created about 115 years ago with the noble goal of managing federal lands that had forests on them uh, for a wide range of products and interest groups. And as of 1950, 1952, it had done a pretty good job. The Newsweek magazine published a, a, an article about the Forest Service saying that everybody loved the agency. Uh, it cut some timber, it provided lots of recreation, it actually made a profit, which uh, most agencies don't do, and uh, it was doing a great job managing the forests. Well, that was a rather auspicious time for the Newsweek to write that article because over the next decade, the Forest Service would be completely transformed by a law that Congress passed that allowed it to keep the receipts from timber sales for reforestation. And there wasn't any limit on how much of the receipts it could keep. And the Forest Service itself decided that even though the money could only be spent on reforestation, it would take about a third of the money and use it for administrative overhead. So over the next decade after 1952, forest after national forest learned that if it clear cut, instead of using selection cutting, which was a cutting method that it had primarily been using in 1952, if it clear cut, it would create a really harsh environment for reforestation. And so they'd have to spend a lot of money reforesting the land, whereas with selection cutting, it's just automatic. You don't have to spend much money on it. So by creating this harsh environment, they could take most of the money that was received from the timber sale and keep it for themselves and use a third of it for administrative overhead. So they built up their bureaucracy as they switched from selection cutting, which was actually uh, 
pretty popular for people because it didn't damage the scenery. It didn't damage wildlife habitat. It didn't do much damage to soils and watersheds. And they switched to clear cutting that did enormous damage to scenery and wildlife and soil and water and, uh, and did it to enhance their own budget. And they didn't even realize they were doing it. They didn't think, hey, I'm going to go screw up the national forest today so I can get a bigger budget. They said, hey, we sold this timber sale and we got a bigger reward for doing it. So therefore, the way we sold that sale must have been good. And the way we were selling timber before must have been bad because we weren't getting as big a reward for it. So by 1970, the Forest Service had completely flipped from using selection cutting to using clerk cutting. They had angered enormous a number of interest groups, wildlife groups, watershed groups, recreation groups, and others, and uh, created enormous controversies. There were hearings in Congress over clerk cutting controversies, and so on and so forth. And they kept doing it. Uh, and then I entered the picture about 1975, and I started studying national forests really closely. And I discovered what was going on that the budget was nudging them through these incentives to clear cut rather than selection cut and to overcut rather than undercut. They were rewarded for doing more environmental damage. They were rewarded for losing money. They were penalized for doing environmentally good things and penalized for making money. And that became the basis of my book, Reforming the Forest Service, which was a result of more than a decade's worth of research. And Amazingly, the Forest Service read the book and said, hey, we didn't realize that was happening to us. We don't want to do that anymore. And they reduced timber sales by 75 to 85 percent. I'm really pleased that happened. But now we have other incentives. The new incentive for the Forest Service is if we let houses burn down, the Congress will give us infinite amounts of money for fire suppression. So now we have to have a sustained yield of houses burned down every year from national forest wildfires. So the Forest Service budget, which is more than doubled since cutting their timber sale program, because they've gotten huge amounts of money for fire. So they've got another incentive, another perverse feedback program going on, problem going on here with wildfire. Uh, and it's going to be a big problem, be a big uh uh, controversy trying to solve that perverse incentive. Two of your articles talk about a conflict of interest between government agencies attempting to solve a problem and the the money put in place put in place for the technologies used to solve that problem. And you argue that this can can lead to conflicting action within a, a singular agency. Um, in Money to Burn and Reforming the Fire Service, you discuss how, how this occurs with fire prevention, for instance. And you write that failing to solve a problem can be more lucrative than solving it, because when the problem becomes a crisis, Congress or state legislatures will deal with it by dumping money on the agencies, close quote. So how do we fight this logic within an environmental protection or the Environmental Protection Agency? Um, and prevent a conflict of interest between environmental mitigation and environmental adaptation? Well, when I look at the climate issue, 
what I see is a lot of myths out there. And these myths are treated as facts. And by treating them as facts, we end up with mandatory prescriptions that often will do more harm than good. Now, I don't know if the climate is getting changed by human actions. I don't know if there is anthropogenic climate change. I'm not a climatologist, that's not my area of expertise. But if there is climate change, I want to see things that are gonna be most cost-effective in solving that problem. And what I see is because of these myths, we ignore the cost-effective solutions and we go for the solutions that benefit certain special interest groups, the ones that are promulgating the myths, uh, and actually do a lot of harm to the economy and to the world as a whole and actually don't solve the, the climate change issue at all. Forest is one part of that. Uh, forest is considered climate neutral. If we cut down trees and we grow more trees, uh, then the trees we cut down and we burn or we do whatever we do with them, they, they emit carbon dioxide, but the trees we grow use it up so it ends up being climate neutral. Well, it turns out it's not as climate neutral as people think. Uh, and so the myth that it's climate neutral turns out to be wrong. Uh, how, how would you deal with fire if, if climate is such an important issue? That's a really wicked problem. Fire itself is a really difficult problem to deal with because um, we don't can't really control almost any of the factors that have to do with fire. And we pretend we can control it. We pretend we can make forests that are less fire prone, which we can't in most cases. We, we, we can in a few cases, but in a lot of cases we can't. We pretend that we can suppress fires, which we can't. Uh, we make all these things up and the myths, the pretend things we do end up rewarding the forest service. And there is no fire service. I just call the forest service that sometimes because now half of its budget has to do with fire. Uh, ends up rewarding the forest service for doing things that turn out to be the wrong things. When we look at other parts of the climate uh, issue, uh, it's often pointed out that transportation produces 30% of greenhouse gases. And so therefore we need to completely change our transportation system, get people on the mass transit, get people bicycling and so on. Well, it turns out uh, the automobile doesn't produce 30% of our uh, greenhouse gases. It's more like about 15% or less changing to electric cars isn't necessarily gonna help because of generating the electricity to power those cars produces lots of greenhouse gases. Um, getting people onto transit doesn't help because guess what? Transit generates more greenhouse gases per passenger mile than, than automobiles do. And transit going up is producing more and more greenhouse gases per passenger mile a year, whereas automobiles are producing less and less each year. They crossed in about 2010, and so uh, again, we're relying on myths to come up with solutions that end up being the wrong ones because we listen to the myths rather than sit down and look at the numbers and see what's actually real. This is a great point from which to discuss 
a topic that we mentioned the other day off air. Notably, President-elect Joe Biden has, has promised to supply an entirely new green industry, tens of millions of jobs, and a greatly expanded inter-rail or intercity rail service in, in many American cities. Yet, in the best laid plans, you point out that government employment quotas disincentivize uh, agent agency efficiency. So, having said that, if you could talk with President, the president-elect right now, what would you advise him to do on these sub on these topics? Well, I think the most important thing for transportation is providing people with the most cost-effective mobility. Mobility is really crucial to the economic growth we've seen in the last century. 110 years ago, uh, most Americans had never traveled more than 50 miles from their home because they didn't have the means to do so. Yes, we had streetcars, but most Americans couldn't afford to ride them. Yes, we had intercity passenger trains, and most Americans couldn't afford to ride those either. And so we had very little mobility. It was mainly for the elites. And then Henry Ford used a mass, uh, the moving assembly line to make Model T Fords, and he made them so cheap, and he doubled worker pay, uh, making it possible for working class people to buy cars. And so automobile ownership went from well under 5% of American households in 1910 to well over half of American households by about 1925. And most of those new cars were Model T Fords. That mobility drove the American economy for the next 50 to 75 years. That mobility is what's made us wealthy. It's what's made the middle class. It's what made it so that uh, by 1970, we had the lowest level of inequality uh, we've ever had, uh, and the, one of the lowest levels of inequality in the world. Inequality has gotten worse since 1970, but in terms of cost, automobiles actually cost a lot less than mass transit when you count all the subsidies. So um, we need to talk about mobility, and that's what I would tell Biden. We're putting too much emphasis on irrelevant parts of our transportation system, like urban transit and uh, intercity passenger trains, and too little e emphasis on the kind of transportation that has really provided Americans with the greatest mobility anybody in the world has ever seen, and that's the automobile. Uh, just one example, Congress yesterday passed a... Uh, COVID relief bill that gave, that spent $900 billion, more than one and a half percent of that money went to urban transit. Now, transportation represents about 20% of the economy and passenger transportation is about half of that, so about 10%. Urban transit carries less than 1% of passenger transportation. So we're talking about less than a tenth of a percent of our economy and they got more than one and a half percent of the dollars. That's just crazy. That's based on this myth that transit is somehow essential to cities when it actually is totally irrelevant to almost every city in the country except for New York. That's the kind of message that the Biden administration needs to learn, and I'm afraid they're not going to learn it.
Mm-hmm. Well, certainly one of the things that that Pre- President-elect Biden will be relying on when he comes into office is the the measurement that is being supplied to him by his the agencies by his aides and um you you talk about units of measurement and 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 modes of and uh methods of measurement that that were used for example in the forestry service um and i i i really found it um intriguing how you talk about um for instance the health costs of car pollution being behind major car regulation, uh, major uh, car emission standard regulation. So we, we got into that earlier. But on another point, you, you talked about the information problem within the government and how there's, there's extensive proof. For instance, the 10 years in, that, you, that you, you mentioned previously, reading into forestry, into forestry papers, those, those years, and at least this is what I picked up from from a portion of your book, The Best Laid Plan, were, were spent in part reading through the algorithms that were used by bureaucrats at, at the forestry agency to determine uh, quotas for, 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 for timber and, um, and other quotas. And, and you, you mentioned, for instance, that they used, they used data that was, that was completely untenable, um, suggesting that trees could grow to to, to double their, their calculated height or in at, at three times the speed, for instance. And um, I mean, obviously this is, this is something that is going on. Um, the fact that it's occurring within the forestry agency, and, and this, is, this is what you found out, at least implies that it's, it's, it's going on elsewhere, um, wherever the incentive exists to manipulate data. Um, it clear, and it clearly exists within the climate scientists sciences. Um, we have hundreds of billions of dollars of, of special interests relying uh, either on, on one verdict or on the other, and uh, most likely on, on where we establish middle ground in terms of the health impacts and, and uh, the long-term social adaptation measures that will need to be taken. So on a general level, not, not just within environmental agencies, but, but also within the forestry service and, and um, and, uh, and and other transport transportation agencies, for instance, you mentioned the the fallacy of uh, of believing that um, that that collective collectivized transportation is cheaper than than cars. Um, how do we prevent these these this data manipulation from occurring? And uh, and and where do we start? Well, I. Recently read uh, a statement by a cognitive psychologist named Steven Pinker. He said, cognitive psychology tells us that the unaided human mind is vulnerable to many fallacies and illusions because of its reliance on memory for vivid anecdotes rather than systematic statistics. I have based my career uh, of nearly 50 years uh, by looking strictly at the systematic statistics and not relying on my own personal interest at all. For example, I love cycling and it would be great if everybody cycled instead of drove. I love passenger trains like the one in the picture behind me. And it'd be great if everybody rode passenger trains instead of drove. I particularly hate driving. I've never liked it. And so uh, if I relied on my own anecdotes, then 
I would endorse these policies that emphasize transit and inner city trains and bicycles. But I realize I'm kind of weird. I'm kind of unusual. Not everybody likes cycling. The average American travels by car 15,000 miles a year. The average American bicycles 26 miles a year, and we ride Amtrak 19 miles a year. We actually bicycle more than we ride Amtrak. And that doesn't even count, that doesn't count recreational cycling, which probably brings it up to about 50 miles a year per American. So uh, we've got these insignificant kinds of transportation. But what does Joe Biden remember? Joe Biden has been called Amtrak Joe because he spent most of his career living in Delaware and taking Amtrak to Washington, D.C. every day. And he gets on a train and he sees other people on the train and it looks crowded. And he thinks lots of people are riding the trains. That's known as uh, uh, <clears throat> the, the survival fallacy. You know, the, these people have survived riding on the trains. In other words, the train has got these many people still riding it, but it's only a drop in the bucket compared to the total people traveling that particular route. Amtrak admits that it only carries about 6% of travel, intercity travel between New York and Washington. Most of it's on the highway, but he doesn't see that. Joe Biden didn't see that when he was riding the train. So he thinks the train is a great method of travel. Now, how do we prevent people from relying on their anecdotes rather than systematic statistics? The only way to do it is to keep them honest, to dig down into those systematic numbers between the Department of Transportation, the EPA, the uh, Census Bureau. We have lots of sources of numbers and make people aware of what those numbers are saying rather than letting people continue to rely on the anecdotes. That's what I did when I was studying the Forest Service. The Forest Service was relying on, on a computer model to decide how each national forest should be managed. And each national forest is about 2 million acres. And even though that's not very much land compared to the total amount of land in the country, uh, they had to vastly oversimplify their computer model and to, to model those 2 million acres on each national forest. Nobody dug into those models except me. Uh, I was the only person outside of the Forest Service who understood and looked at those models. I ended up looking at the models for more than half the national forests. And in about half the cases, what I found were such egregious errors that the Forest Service ended up having to go back and start over, completely scrap everything they had done and start over. I'm not convinced they ever got it perfectly right. And I think they finally gave up on ever, ever doing it at all. One forest never even published a final plan because it had to start over so many times and finally just threw up its hands and gave up. So because I was there, because I was looking at the data, looking at the models, looking at the systematic statistics, the Forest Service had to be more honest than it would have been otherwise. If there isn't somebody like me looking at the Department of Transportation, looking at transit agencies, looking at housing agencies, looking at other uh, public agencies, then those agencies are going to get away with oversimplifying, get away with relying on myths that help them enhance their budgets at everyone else's expense 
without actually solving any of the problems. So we need more people who are willing to dig into the systematic statistics. Okay. Um, but then again, you, you, you do, so you spend all this time looking at these statistics, but on the other, on the other hand, um, as, as you mentioned before, you're, you aren't the, the ordinary American. And this reminds me of, of uh, another point that I had, um, and another American that, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't quite within the norms who, who I know you, you admire quite a lot. And I'm talking about Henry David Thoreau. Um, I read an article of yours, uh, or a blog post from 2008, um, on Thoreau in which you, you write that open quote, he objected to the obstacles which legislators are currently putting in the way of trade and commerce and is as such an inspiration to those who believe governmental protection is compatible with entrepreneurship and business. So that's, that's the ending of one of your, uh, near the ending of, of this, of this article of yours on Thoreau. So you, you named your, your consultancy, the Thoreau Institute. Um, what else could you say about, about his life and, and, um, and the way he thought that, that has influenced your, your views on, on government intervention in environment and in, in everyday citizen life? Well, Henry David Thoreau has become a hero to the environmental movement, but I think they've misunderstood him a great deal. Uh, if you look at his life, you, you see he spent a year living in a cabin by Walden Pond and wrote a book about it called uh, uh, Walden, right? And uh, that is what they celebrate. But he did a lot more than it is in his life than that. He graduated from Harvard University in essentially civil engineering, and he became a surveyor and he subdivided people's land for suburban subdivisions, for suburbs of, of Boston. He also, uh, his family owned a graphite mine and they made pencils. And so he mined the graphite and then he personally figured out how to make pencils that were competitive with the best pencils made in Europe. And pretty soon Thoreau pencils were known nationwide as the best pencils you could buy in the United States. So he became a miner, he became a manufacturer. Uh, he was also a naturalist and he read Charles Darwin's book on, on evolution. And of the people, the first Americans to read that book, uh, a recent book has come out about first, the first Americans who read the book on uh, natural selection. He was the only one who really understood it. And he went out into the forest and he looked around and he came up with an idea that was inspired by uh, uh, Darwin called natural succession, in which if you look at a forest, you'll see some parts of the forest might be oaks and some parts of the forest might be pines. And in some places, you'll, what he found was that there would be a succession that after a fire, the first trees to come in might be hardwoods, but then they'd be replaced by softwoods and then they'd be replaced by other softwoods. You get this succession of forest types to other forest types. Nobody had ever thought of that before. And that's now a standard principle of ecology, a term that hadn't even been invented when Thoreau was alive and is taught in eco 
ecological courses in universities today, but they don't mention that it was first developed by Henry David Thoreau. So here's this amazing guy. He's an ecologist, a miner, a manufacturer, a subdivider, uh, did a lot of things that environmentalists would hate today, but that uh, were very important to the growth of the country in those days. And of course, he believed in civil disobedience. He didn't believe that government should control everything, which is actually John Muir, he figured that out and he dismissed Thoreau saying he was just a huckleberry picker. Uh, John Muir believed in government command and control, which I don't think works very well. So that's why I admire Thoreau. On one hand, he believed that we needed to preserve some land, but by we, he meant private individuals, not the government. And on the other hand, he didn't believe in government command and control because he thought it would do more harm than good. And I, I believe he, he's been proven correct on that. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, Thoreau um, defined himself and, and perhaps even signed his name um, alongside the, the uh, alongside the label civil engineer. This is something that you you discuss. Um, so to the, the point of, of of government protection having certain limits, obviously, and this is this is something that that I'm I'm trying to do progressively is to look at into what role businesses can play um, and specifically what role businesses can play in market scenarios where the where the negative externality that's that's being promulgated isn't necessarily isn't necessarily self-evident. Um, we talk, for instance, about about car pollution. This is something that that, that you obviously know 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 a lot about, um, and how for a long time car pollution emissions were or emission regulations were were quite unrestricted because at that point there wasn't yet a knowledge about about specifically what the health co health costs might be. So I suppose my, my question in this instance, moving from throw to a, to a wider um, entrepreneurial perspective is how can that ethical business that, that doesn't possess the, the, the advantage of revolutionary technology um, or, or um, intuition, market intuition, such as, um, such as was the case with um, Elon Musk's Tesla, how can such an, an ethical entrepreneur attempt to uh, to kind of take take a standard, get on his feet within within a market where he's competing with with unethical um, and, and obviously ruthless enterprises that have at that point a, a tactical advantage? Well, there are definitely uh, market tools that people can use. Uh, one example is with automobile safety. Uh, I recently was asked to review a book that looked at automobile safety. And the book said that, I think it was about 1965 or 66, Ralph Nader wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, in which he showed that automobiles were dangerous. And this led Congress to pass legislation mandating that automobiles become safer, creating a, or giving powers to the department, what became the Department of Transportation, what's now the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to uh, mandate improvements in safety to automobiles. And this book concluded cars are safer today, so therefore uh, these safety laws worked, therefore uh, Ralph Nader's book succeeded 
in changing society and changing transportation forever. Well, I sat down and I looked at the numbers systematically, and it turned out cars were really, really dangerous in 1900. The, the number of people killed per uh, uh, billion vehicle miles driven was enormous, and it declined steadily for the next 100 years. And there's no indication that that decline was affected at all by the legislation that came about as a result of unsafe at any speed of Nader's book. Uh, in fact, as early as the 1950s, Ford Motor Company and Kaiser, which made automobiles in the, in the late 40s and early 50s, both advertised that their cars had taken steps to make themselves safer, such as providing crumple uh, uh, steering wheels so that you wouldn't get impaled on your steering wheel and padded dashboards and things like that. So what the market did was it recognized that cars were dangerous and automobile manufacturers made their cars safer and safer. We also made safer highways. The interstate highway system saved 5,000 lives a year because it got people off of more dangerous roads onto safer highways and so on and so forth. So things were improving without the legislation. Now, we can't say for sure that cars would have been cleaner without the Environmental Protection Agency, but I suspect some manufacturer would have come along and say, hey, buy our car and you won't be polluting as much. And uh, people might have done it in the same way as people buy Priuses because they're more energy efficient, not because uh, they particularly need to save money on their gas bill, but because they want to say they're driving an energy efficient, sustainable car. In the same way people buy uh, uh, Teslas for the same reason. So manufacturers can advertise that things are safer. How about tuna fish? Um, who wants to buy dolphin unfriendly tuna today? You know, all the dolphin, all the tuna Packers will say, we pack dolphin-friendly tuna. And so uh, we protect dolphins just through the market. So I think the market can do a lot for us. And as I say, even where the market doesn't work, sometimes the government uh, remedies end up being worse than the market failure in the first place. Great. Amazing. Um, and this, this last point you made leads me to, to my final question which regards the tragedy of the commons. Um, one of your, this is one of the, the areas, um, one of the thought provoking areas of, of, of your writing um, within the economic uh, sphere, at least. And um, as, as, as you may have, as you may have noticed this, the, the um, maybe not the podcast name, um, the namesake of this podcast is, is Eleanor Ostrom, um, who, who recently won the Nobel Prize for her work in 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 and around the Commons? Um, her, in her view, the ideal solution for uh, a non-market viable tragedy of the Commons scenario was where actors in the prisoner's dilemma scenario that is typical of of a Commons tragedy um, agree to a set of binding rules and and then outsource informant enforcement to a third party. So I'd, I'd just like to close uh, with any thoughts that you might have on how how we can apply the same, this, this thought, which we've already actually seen 
in instances such as the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, where countries come together and attempt to, to set um, mutually reinforcing rules that that won't disadvantage any anyone involved. In going forward, how can we how can that happen at an industry level? So between between competing industries that have to all make the same emissions choices or the same transportation transportation choices um, in terms of what they produce or how they produce it. Um, and also between individual countries at an international level. Well, I'm not convinced that Eleanor Ostrom's solutions will work in a lot of instances. I think the places where she found that uh, the tragedy of the commons had been solved by mutual agreement uh, involved small groups of people, uh, you know, people numbering in the hundreds, not the thousands, and certainly not the millions. We look at uh, the United States today, we have 330 million people, and we do have a lot of commons. We have 400 national parks, and every year you'll see stories about how we're loving parks to death. That's a tragedy of the commons. They've, we've made them a commons, and the very popular areas like Yosemite Valley and Yellowstone and so on just get inundated with people, uh, and uh, it's not good for the, the ecosystem. That is not that great for recreational experiences of the people either. There are simple solutions to that. Uh, and the, the solution to the tragedy of the commons is to make it a market resource. Uh, for example, uh, let's charge market rates to enter Yosemite Valley. And then some people who would go to Yosemite Valley, might go to Yosemite Valley, would go instead to Hetch Hetchy Valley, which is still a very beautiful valley, even though it's got a dam in it and doesn't get hardly any recreation use because everybody is attracted to Yosemite Valley. So let's charge market rates to get in. But no, we have to make it a commons so that we can use thuggish for park service policies to control what everybody does while they're there instead of letting the markets work. Um, unfortunately, what I see is environmental groups saying, the tragedy of the commons is a good thing because it gives us an excuse to have government command and control. So let's take resources that are now in the marketplace and make them into a commons so that we can have a tragedy so we can justify government command and control. I find that very disturbing, uh, which is why I stopped calling myself an environmentalist when I recognized that was happening. Uh, about 20 some years ago. It didn't, it didn't make sense. It meant that environmentalists were no longer interested in protecting the environment. They were more interested in making government bigger rather than solving problems. Not every environmental problem can be solved by turning it into a market, but a lot more can be solved than have been solved that way. And uh, we shouldn't be taking market resources and turning them into commons in order to justify more government control. Mr. O'Toole, that's, that's amazing. Um, I, I've really enjoyed talking with you today and uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me.